Hello there. Welcome to the Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality, delving into the plant-powered world of herbalism. So do you know your echinacea from your eleutherococcus or your polyphenol from your polysaccharides? Whether you're a budding herbalist, an inquisitive health professional, or a botanical beginner, Herbcast is here to inform and inspire you on your journey to integrating herbs in our everyday lives. So settle down, turn us up, and let's start today's episode of the Herbal Reality Herbcast. Todd Caldecott. It's great to be with you, Todd. And great to be with you, Sebastian. And uh, as I was just saying, you know, I've wanted to meet you for a long time. I feel like we've had similar paths in some ways and walked, walked a lucky route through the Ayurvedic and herbal world. And Todd, you, uh, you've written some great books on Ayurveda and also you run the, the Dogwood School of um, Herbal Medicine, don't you? Yeah, so, botanical medicine, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. botanical medicine so um, uh, I know that you love teaching and sharing your thoughts with people and I've been a, a big fan of your blog for many years and oh, thank many, you. Uh, thank you so many much. a helpful insight and so in this series of the podcast Todd we're talking about different conditions and how we think um, herbalism, Ayurveda, natural approaches can help people mm-hmm. and so as the, as the, as the autumn comes in and, and winter starts and we, we hit that time when mood may be an issue for people. I thought it would be interesting to look at anxiety and depression because um, I've read some of your work and heard some of your talks on the subject and I've, I've always been interested in your view and mm-hmm. I always remember you pointing out that you know despite the high levels of anxiety and depression we have in our society today um, there's no mention of anxiety so much. Uh, specifically in Ayurveda and I just thought it'd be interesting to look at it from that side of uh, that side of the Ayurvedic perspective around you know what might cause these symptoms and these fluctuations in in our feelings and our emotions Mm. how can we how can we address them yeah sure that's my pleasure Um, so I mean you know why do you think there is so much of it around Todd and and what can we do about it I mean a big question but start off you know what you know what are some of the causes behind some of the difficulty and suffering that we experience in a way um, with regards to how we digest our experience of life yeah well certainly suffering isn't new to humanity obviously in uh, Ayurveda the the entire sort of ontological basis of Ayurveda the Sankhya Darshanas it's based on the, the concept that really there's no there's no god that will save us there's no there's no real meaning to the universe apart from the alleviation of suffering and then you find that that idea or notion represented in subsequent spiritual traditions most notably in buddhism mm-hmm. so it's not a unique thing but i do think that obviously over the last say 5000 years the, the 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 pattern and rhythm of life has changed significantly and certainly just in the last 50 to 100 years, we could say even the last 20 years, things have changed, just really are speeding up. And I, I know, you know, you being very grounded in the theory and practice of Ayurveda can correlate that to vitiation of the doshas and specifically of Vata. I mean, just imagine what the, the pace of life used to be like, you know, several thousand years ago, like when the Buddha was going forth uh, it was, you know, pretty pretty mundane and pretty slow. I mean, it took you f- forever to get anywhere. I mean, the fastest vehicle you had was a bullock cart, I guess, you know, a horse maybe, but, uh, you know, pretty, pretty slow going. Things changed slowly. There was just naturally this, this, this integration with, with, um, with the seasons, with the daily rhythm. Of course, it was an agricultural society, so that has its own kind of pace or rhythm to it as well. And, you know, people just out of necessity were just integrated in a way that we're not observing now. I mean, you know, you needed to work together as a collective, even as hunter-gatherers, but certainly in agrarian settled societies, it was all about the common effort and the connections, the familial connections, the, the friendships, the tribal connections. 
And I think that we're just bearing witness to the degradation of all those different factors. And I think the digital age is just kind of sped up what the industrial age was already doing to the fabric of society and just creating that, that, that sense of disconnection. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's odd. I mean, you and I having never met before, here we are, we're online, we're able to talk to each other, but of course I'm here in, you know, my office, you're in your office, you know, we can see each other, we can talk to each other, but we don't have that kind of intimate connection. You know, I, I, I can't feel your presence in the same way as I would if you were sitting with me. Mm-hmm. And so it's ironic given how interconnected we are as a world in this digital age, how the loss of that physical connection uh, really has a big impact. I mean, we, we're simple creatures, we're simple animals. I mean, we like to think of ourselves as sort of these evolved, this evolved species you know, that knows how to cope and adapt with all of these remarkable changes that have hap- happened to our society. But, you know, we're not, you know, we're very simple animals and we need to maintain that physical connection with each other. We, and, 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 and also the connection to those daily rhythms, those seasonal rhythms. And so I think, you know, as I'm sure you're really aware just how disconnected we are from this in every element. And one of the things that I mentioned in my book, Food is Medicine, in the, in the epilogue, because I spent the entire book talking about the importance of food and using food as, as a medicine and the spectrum between food and medicine, something that obviously doesn't exist for pharmaceuticals. But the whole function and active eating is itself a, um, is a representation of, of, of a community. I mean, food itself is just an emanation of the community of life that we all partake within and it is something we also talk about as well it's just like the disconnection around you know understanding where our food comes from and how to relate to food and that obviously just then extends into other areas like how we how we share food or how we think food collectively uh, you know the issues around food security in our own communities We've all seen this with with COVID, the disruption of the the the, the global supply chain, and uh, you know I think that we're like at a at, at at a turning point in some respects, where I think a, a lot of these issues are coming to to uh, to the fore, and we're really beginning to start to examine this issue of disconnection and loneliness, and the sort of vibratory quality that you and I relate to the initiation of Vata, just how. How, how it's kind of an emergency in our society and and in particular it's really affecting young people mm-hmm. so i think those are some of the reasons why we're seeing what we're seeing um there's good sort of historical precedent for for all of this but you know and so that means like when we look how to address it obviously ayurveda provides us with some fantastic tools but we also have to really uh take account of what's happening now i mean you know there's some allusion to some of the changes that have happened in our, you know, Kali Yuga in this period of time that we find ourselves in. But, you know, we, Ayurveda can't provide us with all the answers of it. Like, you know, how do you Ayurvedically manage your relationship with your phone? You know, like there's no, there's no shloka for that. You know, so, you know, it, it, it we have to like a, apply some of the principles and practices beyond their traditional confines to help us understand what exactly is happening to us. Mm. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot in there. Yeah, sorry. It's a big question. There's a, a great answer because, you know, you're emphasizing this feeling of sort of disassociation in a way that we have um, from other people, but potentially from ourselves in the sense that we're not connected perhaps with some of the natural rhythms and some of the feelings that are arising in us and I love that you brought up so quickly um, this idea of dinacharya or the daily routine mm-hmm. and um, embedding that within our, our diets and our, our routine of how we eat mm-hmm. so much of what I think happens in clinical practice is when you you hear these stories of difficulty and uh, challenge people affected by life drawn out of themselves in a way how the simple practices that Ayurveda recommends which are very accessible and affordable most of them or many of them and um, can become an integral part of your life Mm -hmm. they 
that they become the bedrock of a, of a foundation, of a, a rhythm and a pulse that you can create. And so maybe tell us a bit more about how you see our diet connected with our feeling well, if, if, as opposed to anxious, and, and what are some of the tools you use there, Todd? Yeah, well, with anxiety in particular, um, I mean, so I'm, I'm a little bit of, um, I, I don't like to use this term so much, but you might call me a little bit of a maverick in the field of Ayurveda in the sense that I, you know, I played around with the, with the vegetarian diet when I was a young man. I was a vegetarian for 10 years and, and for all the reasons that people are attracted to Ayurveda and Ayurvedic diet um, and yoga, etc. And, you know, I, I just hit a wall with it for, in my own health. And so, and then when I began to really look at this issue and the classical texts of Ayurveda and all the, you know, traditional practices that we find throughout the subcontinent, I became aware that, you know, like a vegetarian diet wasn't prescribed by Ayurveda. And I only bring this up because when we talk about anxiety, and as you correctly pointed out that while it is, um, it is a symptom of Vata that was recognized as a symptom of Vata. It wasn't described as a separate disorder. It was just in a group of general symptoms that we would relate to an increase or vitiation of Vata. So it did exist. It wasn't like it didn't exist as an entity. It just wasn't as common that it needed a separate, you know, clinical, clinical designation. So when you look at like different macronutrients, so this is carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, you know, and we consider how they're digested and metabolized. And, you know, of course, Ayurveda views digestion to be model on that of a fire, you know, and this is a, a concept that is found throughout all traditional indigenous systems of medicine that they represent different types of fuel that will burn in our, our system in, in different ways and provide us with different benefits. And so it can be used intelligently to to yield different results. And one of the, the things that has happened, certainly over 10,000 years, but definitely over the last 100 years, uh, patterns in terms of how we eat nutrients and how we balance those different macronutrients is that definitely our diet has shifted towards a, a lot higher carbohydrate consumption, a lot higher refined carbohydrate consumption. So, I mean, you, you live in the UK, so I've never, I mean, I've, I've been, but I haven't traveled extensively. So, but if you just go back a hundred years ago and think like, what was the traditional breakfast in the UK? You know, like kippers or maybe steak and eggs or, but it was a heavy breakfast. If you were a farmer, the idea of like having a bowl of cornflakes and, a, and an orange juice and a coffee, you know, which is represented as being, you know, a balanced breakfast and you're out there, you know, cleaning out the chicken coop or mucking around with the sheep, mending fence posts, you probably give yourself about 45 minutes before your blood sugar crashes and, and you're back in the farmhouse and, you know, looking for some more nutrients. You're messing up the nice clean kitchen floor with your muddy boots and it just doesn't work. So, you know, after, you know, you get up early in the morning and do your morning chores, but then you come in when the sun is, has arisen and that appetite starts to stoke because of course our digestion or appetite appetite essentially are model on the path of the sun in the sky so as the sun rises that begins to quicken within us but then you sit down and have a heavy breakfast something that was richer in fat and protein and then that'll sustain you for for hours and I, I I this is such an important element in my practice it's just it's it's something that I realized more than 20 years ago, I had three kids and I'd get up in the morning and get them off to school and we'd make oatmeal and, you know, chop up some apple and some, a little bit of almonds, roasted almonds and, you know, butter, a little bit of maple syrup. And it seemed like a healthy breakfast and certainly they, they would eat it and they liked it. And I would go to work and I'd be in clinic and I'd see a patient or two, but then pretty quickly my blood sugar would just, just crash. And then I'd have to run across the street and, you know, grab a coffee and a muffin or something and then sit with my next patient and after scarfing that down and basically tell them not to do what I just did. And I was like, this is, this is weird. Like, how can I, this is not sustainable. Mm. So, you know, I began to examine like, what did people eat for breakfast? And based on that axiom of like to breakfast like a king or a queen and to dine like a pauper, something I've actually, an axiom that is found in almost every culture 
I've talked to people from Iran, from China, all over the world. People have the same idea that you, you know, traditional people eat like a heavy breakfast, not at like 730 in the morning, but you know, it might be closer to noon, like as prescribed in Ayurveda, when your digestion is kind of at its peak. And you eat this heavier food, which, you know, manages to keep your blood sugar relatively stable. And you're not just dumping a bunch of sugar in your system and then causing this spike in insulin, which then usually overshoots the mark and brings your blood sugar a little bit too low. So then you're in hypoglycemic pattern and then you're on that roller coaster all day. It just sustains your blood sugar. So I, I found enormous benefit in my own uh, mental health, uh, you know, and, uh, and I began to apply that in my practice. I remember having a, a patient many years ago. She was, um, she was a yoga teacher, so she was really healthy. She was also a dancer. And uh, she had been suffering from like acute anxiety for, you know, I think it had been up for like 13 years, like just, and she tried lots of different medications, tried lots of different herbs. And ironically, she came to me and was asking for help, but said, you know, I don't want to take any herbs. I've tried all the herbs. They don't work. <laughs> so I was like, all right, we haven't given me many options to work with. I am a herbalist. So, um, you know, her morning routine was to get up and have, uh, you know, a cup of coffee and a, and a vegan muffin. She was, you know, a vegan vegetarian. And she also had uh, menstrual irregularities, which were, are pretty common in that pattern. And so I said, all right, well, fine. You don't want to take any herbs. So um, I want you to have lamb stew for breakfast every morning. And she was just like, what? I'm a vegetarian. And I'm like, yeah, I know you are. But you haven't given me any options. And this will be the most direct route to addressing this issue because it's going to have this neurostabilizing effect. It's a slow burning fuel. You know, if you put kindling in a fireplace on a wood stove, it'll combust and burn, but it won't heat your house. It'll, it'll, it'll exhaust itself in you know, 10 minutes, whereas a heavy piece of wood, you know, some nice uh, Douglas fir we have out here, or maybe you know, like uh, cherry wood or something, something that's going to really hold the heat, you know, that'll burn all day long. And so it's the same kind of idea that you give yourself a fuel that'll burn slowly. And so I convinced her, I'm actually pretty convincing in clinic. And so she did that. And then she called me up like, it was like three or four days later. I was like, this is really weird, but, um, I don't have any anxiety. Like I don't have any anxiety, you know? And then she called me about two weeks later and said that, you know, I, I'm getting my period. You know, she, you know, she had this, um, amenorrhea pattern. And so for a woman, especially, you know, who women I regard as, um, you know, their bodies are all about supporting life. You know, even if you don't have children, your body is still exuding this energy. Women's bodies, uh, by nature, are a little leaky. You know, menstruation and lactation. Women bruise more easily, typically. Um, you know, there's this need to, like, nourish and support women. And so this diet was a diet that actually provided that. You know, there's a... It's a diet uh, I call the yoga girl diet and we see it here in, uh, in Vancouver and it's just kind of the sort of peripheral eating, you know, like smoothies and, you know, vegan muffins and, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't get to the core of the issue of what really needs to nourish them and, it, and some of it's based on a misapprehension of what is appropriate in the diet and some assumptions they've made about like um, maybe spirituality and about how diet plays into that, especially with yoga so I, I certainly have my own opinions around that. So it's a, it's, I think it's a really important practice. It's something that I do for myself. It's something I recommend to my patients. I would say, you know, it's, it's definitely in the top five recommendations I can suggest for people is to make sure that you're eating a, a, a protein, fat-rich breakfast. Now, it doesn't have to be have meat in it. You know, if you're a lacto-ovo-vegetarian, it's, you know, then you can certainly get by doing that. I mean, I, I most get most of my, my protein from eggs. Um, you know, I don't feel the need to eat much meat, but I certainly do eat eggs and, uh, and butter and, um, you know, and some other, uh, local proteins. So that one little recommendation can have a dramatic impact on someone's mental health and specifically with anxiety, because, you know, anxiety is this high vibratory, level and then you're just sort of bringing everything down by giving a fuel that has this neurostabilizing influence. So it's a very powerful recommendation, but also very simple.
I wasn't expecting a lamb stew cure. No, and if you look at DSM-5, you're not going to see that under anxiety. But it should be, maybe. No, I think you're right. I mean, I, I love how you challenge the status quo and I, I call them herb and myths that we adopt. You know, we bring we, we pick them up through our culture and our peer group or our, you know, how <laughs> we've studied. And um, you alluded there to perceptions around food. And I remember hearing you talk about the qualities of sattva, rajas and tamas not necessarily being able to be uh, embodied through diet and that we subscribe too much moral value to certain foods i don't want to put words into your mouth but you know that there's a sort of we can we can overly view certain foods as raising spirituality for example or enhancing in that way and um yeah, and i reject that notion I, do, I don't think that you can eat a certain food and be more spiritual that yeah it's 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 actually not even supported by ayurveda there's no there's no designation of sattva, rajas, and tamas within the corpus of Ayurveda as it relates to food. You know, everything, everything physical arises from tamas. You know, our bodies, the physical universe, the panchamahabhutas, the, the elements, the, that includes food. And so it's all, it's all you know, the, 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 the function of tamas. So sattva you know, represents our consciousness, you know, and, and I'm not saying that food doesn't affect our consciousness, but... You know, like, you know, it's not just like meat or wine or, you know, any of these kind of like uh, so-called tamasic foods. They're all tamasic, you know, you know, and and in this regard, like lamb stew um, was very grounding and and created a sense of mental peace and equanimity in this patient. So are we saying that that it's not sattvic? I mean, that I mean, you just look at the effect of it. Uh, I think it would be, although I kind of reject once again, that that notion that you can apply the sattva rajas tamas to food, you know, I, I, I there's another there are other ways that we can describe those effects in Ayurveda. We don't need to do that, and that, that actually is an interpolation from like the 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 Ishvara uh, uh, Sankhya from the Bhagavad Gita, which also is a medieval text primarily. And these notions and ideas found their crept their way into Hindu beliefs and also into Ayurveda relatively recently when you think about the thousands of year history of indian culture and ayurveda you know these notions are, are relatively new and i think they should be questioned mm. particularly for you know folks like you and i who live in the northern climate and you know might be struggling to get by on you know rice and dal mm. you know it's uh it's it, it'd be pretty hard to you know, in some parts of the world, to think that that would be sufficient to to meet all of your 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 food needs. I mean, it's a big conversation, isn't it? Because there's, from the Ayurvedic point of view, perhaps there isn't such a a morality associated with it. But of course, I, I know you would subscribe, or I assume you'd subscribe to a more ethical approach to how one sources the protein and things like that because of the, 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 the pressures on the climate and the environment and, and all of those things. But I, I, I think yeah. it's great to challenge our, our preconceptions and mm -hmm. to, as you're doing, be in service of the client or the patient to help them with what nature has to offer, offer the mm -hmm. most. And I, I, I can hear you're getting good results with people and that's <laughs> in, in many ways the most important thing. And so... Obviously, Agni, digestive fire, diet, you know, central to how we feel uh, on every level, but also significantly to uh, ameliorating anxiety. And, mm -hmm. and what are some other things that you might do um, in, your, in your care? Yeah, so, you know, getting this, 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 or addressing this vibratory quality of Bata, doing anything we can do to kind of like reduce that. So diet is obviously a big part of that. Uh, exercise is a huge part of that too. You know, um, I discovered many years ago that, you know, if I was feeling anxious, if I just, you know, did 20 push-ups, uh, I would stand up and I felt a lot less anxious, yeah. you know? So anxiety is kind of like this, like, you know, it's like this energy that you're holding on to and, and you need to disperse it, you know? And so I think a lot of people find this that, physical exercise has a grounding effect. You can just sort of discharge that excess energy in your body and 
it, it gives you the sort of grounded feeling. So exercise is really important. Of course, exercise used to be built into everyone's life. It, it was just a, a, a pattern of just the, of the daily rhythm. And now in our modern age, in this industrial age, in this digital age, uh, you don't need to do that. You know, you could you could just hole up in your apartment or your house and you get very little exercise because, you know, without, you know, without, you know, without something external forcing you like a dog or something that needs a walk, you know. Uh, so physical exercise is really important. Getting out there. And it's also very good for just balancing uh, neurotransmitter levels in the brain. For example, like like serotonin, which is associated more with like uh, issues around depression. All that's an oversimplification, but you know, if you're if you're not feeling depressed, then you know some people uh, experience depression and then get anxious about that, and so you have this sort of dichotomy of depression and anxiety. Whereas some people are more anxious and then kind of get depressed about that. I kind of like separate those two and kind of figure out what's the origin of that, but. Balancing, you know, serotonin levels in the brain by getting exercise in the earlier part of the day also does things like it helps with sleep later on. Like you get a little bump of serotonin uh, just after REM stage that drives you into deep sleep. And, you know, having proper deep sleep is going to have a big impact on the, the anxiety levels the next day. If you have wake up feeling restored and rejuvenated, you know, having that, that, that wonderful effect of that, of that balancing kapha property and you get up and you're just feeling nourished and supported by that, then of course the anxiety levels are going to be a lot better. And, you know, there's a lot you can say about our sleep hygiene and, and anxiety as well. And, uh, and, and how, uh, there's a lot of dysregulation, uh, basically since the advent of electricity and, you know, electric light, but it's gotten even worse, of course, with handheld devices that we stare at, you know, uh, before we go to bed. So physical exercise, that nourishing diet. And I'd say another major component that I try to address is just sort of thinking energetically, like what is the nature and quality of anxiety? Like the capacity to like, to, to fret and think and worry about things that are that haven't happened to you that might be happening in the future it may sound weird to say it but it's it's a creative act right anything that kind of takes you out of the present moment and you're projecting yourself into the future you're imagining that you know there's a function of imagination and that is creativity but it's kind of a reversed or backwards flow of creativity I know you're familiar with this dynamic but you know we, we sort of receive prana extrinsically from the universe, you know, from the food and water we consume, but also just energetically it moves into the body and as prana, it functions as vata. So, uh, and the whole flow of prana is, is downwards, you know, and of course there's udana, we exhale, but it's this net effect. And so we have this uh, prana that's rooted in the body called the panavayu. And the function of a panavayu is to like ground us. It rises up to, to, to assist with digestion, but then moves back down. So this is sort of downward flow. And that's, that represents kind of a healthy, balanced creativity. You take inspiration, manifest it through your body, and then down, grounded on the earth. And that's like some kind of physical, tangible result of our creative process. But what ha happens energetically in anxiety is that this this downward moving energy kind of kind of hits resistance, and then moves back up, and it gets stuck in our head, you know. And and I'm 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 pretty sure you're familiar with that dynamic of this like uh, you know reversed flow of vata, you know. And it it almost feels like you're drowning, you know, like it's just moving up your body, and you know gets up to your neck, and oh my God, I'm gonna drown. And so it's, it's, it can be a reversed flow of creative energy. And so one of the solutions for that is to actually engage in, you know, creative activities that allow for the release of this energy and to get you back into that flow state. And I think this is where, you know, like we all know how to do it. We, some of us are disconnected from is this function of play and playfulness you know, of, of engaging in that creative act. So like uh, in my, I have a studio in my property and, and just with my local community here, we, we do things like, like uh, theater improv classes. And most of us are not 
skilled actors by any stretch. And the whole purpose of it is just to kind of get yourself into a flow state. You know, when you're doing theater improv, there's a couple of rules. You're not allowed to say no, you know, and uh, you don't ask questions. So you make statements because statements give people something to work with. And it's a commitment in, t in terms of a direction. So it, it just by playing with each other, uh, you know, it has this effect of like reducing Vata. We all feel more grounded. We're smiling. We're laughing uh, and just feeling more connected with each other. So anything like that, that's like that gets you into kind of this state of creative flow will be very beneficial for your anxiety. I like more embodied forms. So I think things like dancing are probably the best. And if you look like in a traditional society like India, like just consider how many gods and goddesses there are, how many holidays there are, how many opportunities that people have collectively to get together and just kind of release all of their the angst of the previous week or days in, in, a, in, a, in a socially acceptable way to just release that, that creative tension and in, in, in through this kind of collective sigh of relief. You know, I mean, I've seen, I've gone to festivals in India and it, you know, it looks like people are like at a rave, you know, and yet they haven't taken any drugs or anything. They're just engaged in this sort of creative process of release. And they're like wild hippie dancing and just like releasing this energy. Uh, I think it's a wonderful practice. And we don't, you know, as a function of our in, industrialized, individuated society, we're missing those types of connections where we used to get together. I mean, you know, we all used to be Christian in the West and there were all these saints holidays and, you know, reasons for us to get together as a community to some extent to experience this, this sense of, of, of communal cohesion and creative release. Um, we, we are missing that. We don't have substitutes for that. Of course, maybe going out to, you know, the pub on a Friday night and getting hammered, which, you know, is really not the most effective way to do that and has its own problems. So anyway, some form of creative release I find is super effective. It can be journaling. It can be um, painting. Uh, it, but I like dancing. I like things like the improv, like playing charades. I mean, just look at little kids. Look what they what they do. They, they, they play, you know, like to release anxiety. When my kids were little and I could see they're having issues, you know, we bring out the Play-Doh, you know, and they would just like, you know, make things and pound things and, you know, and, and, the, and you could see just like how they could just release the whatever tension they were experiencing in their little bodies just through that process of creativity. Oh, it sounds like, you know, you give great recommendations because you're giving people lots of nice food that really super healthy and nourishing and then um, connecting with the wider world and bringing that grounded prana into you lots of laughter and play and dance you know it it sounds really good it sounds yeah. really really good and you know within the confines of people's responsibilities on a daily level a, a, a lot of that is potentially accessible um, so that all that all sounds really really empowering and I I, I myself feel more grounded when I hear you talk about the prana you know, entering into us and just that awareness of the movement of the flow of consciousness through us down to the down to the ground makes one feel more more present somehow and more more connected. So I, I appreciate that reminder. <laughs> yeah, and it's all you know. And there's practices like in pranayama which where you're extending the exhalation relative to the inhalation. Mm -hmm. Or you know the the box breathing that you can do, where at least the inhalation and exhalation are are uh, are paired, because often what we do is we take these deep breaths in and then we kind of hold it, you know, or and then we don't properly exhale. But it's that exhalation that roots us and brings us back into our bodies and opens up and creates the potential for the next breath. You know, and and so just extending your exhalation relative to your inhalation can be very helpful practice or that box breathing that is recommended. I think it very much aligns with the principles and practices of yoga and Ayurveda. Uh, it just has this effect of grounding us. And so, yeah, focusing on something as simple as breathing, obviously, is very helpful for anxiety. I mean, you know, you're, you're reminding me that you're really thinking or you're educating people about how to cultivate wisdom, really, and the idea of pragna and 
how you cultivate that um, virtue and inner peace and awareness and but in a really very accessible sort of contemporary way you know you can take these ancient uh, tried and tested methods for inner peace if you like and then and then apply them to the outer world so I, I, I really like that thought and um, so having set up this really wonderful routine that mm -hmm. we're going to try and adopt ourselves or you know we'll come back to as much as we can mm -hmm. um, you know where might be some of your favorite interventions from the, the herbal world and um, yeah where where might you go to help people and some of your experiences I've, I've especially enjoyed reading some of your work you talk about thymoleptics Bit, oh yeah, yeah. Herbs that instill happiness, and I, I, I love that. Uh, just yeah. Yeah, I well, that's some of your favorite herbs, Todd, and what you like to use. Yeah, yeah. A thymoleptic. That I, I learned that term from one of my um, teachers, now colleague, uh, Chanchal Cabrera, yeah. who is a medical herbalist trained in the UK tradition. So that's very much a UK herbal action, as far as I'm aware of thymoleptic. Um, yeah, scientific way of saying a herb that just makes you a little happier. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, any any herb that helps to, with that sort of downward flow, that downward grounding uh, action is very helpful. And it can begin with, like, ensuring that digestion is functioning correctly, that we're supporting the different organs that participate in that process, like liver function. If your liver is all, you know, bunged up and isn't flowing properly, then... It creates, you know, a huge amount of chaos in the body and allows for that energy to flow. So, you know, having that um, using cologogs. I mean, some of those cologogs are used in traditional medicine to have an antidepressant property. Even like a herb like St. John's wort, which is quite a bitter herb, is actually a, a bitter cologog. Or say the Chinese bupleurum. Uh, is a fantastic herb to regulate the flow of, of the of the liver chi, uh, and that in turn has this grounding effect. So addressing addressing it from that perspective, I think, is very helpful. Accounting for any kind of like energetic deficiencies that might that might be present, we say ojas in in Ayurveda, and you know you don't have to. Ex 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 experience like a frank deficiency of ojas ojikshaya to to feel diminished right like i think this the regular wear and tear of life just diminishes us and so taking these herbs that help to nourish us you know that in the that help to directly nourish that uh, the specific datu or specifically nourish ojas are very helpful what about um trofo restoratives as uh, is is another right is that would you relate that to ojas in some way or you if we're talking yeah. about antigens, would you use that sort of idea that they're restoring the tissue quality and the exactly yeah and you could call you know you have nervine trophy restoratives or musculoskeletal trophy restoratives but the whole function of trophy restorative is just a is just to restore the vitality to that system in whatever specific system you're talking about or generally and that correlates well with the with the concept of rasayana, in or or fujeng in uh, Chinese medicine. They're all very similar. And so yeah, there's there's herbs that are used for that purpose. Like ashwagandha is probably one of the most commonly used ones, and can be paired with shatavari. Very helpful. Of course, we know uh, ashwagandha has a gabaergic activity, so it helps to rebalance some of the neurotransmitter function of the brain to just support that those sort of um, those neuroinhibitory properties just to kind of calm the brain down interestingly though uh, about 20% of the population has the opposite response as they do to valerian so just bear that in mind a lot of people try ashwagandha and are like it doesn't work for me there must be something wrong with me no no it's just it's just that uh, there's it doesn't work for everybody you know, we, we'd say in Ayurveda that it increases pitta, so you could say, oh, maybe those people have a pitta imbalance or just a little, constitutionally a little bit too much pitta. I've, I've seen that correlation, and uh, but I'm not sure if that applies to everyone. There's always exceptions, like those people that can drink coffee and go to sleep. Like, I know that's definitely not me, but some people are, are like that. Um, you know, I'm, I, this is not Ayurveda per se, but one of my favorite herbs to kind of calm and balance the mind is reishi mushroom. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, there's a bylines for reishi mushroom. I learned this uh, several years ago from one of my colleagues, uh, formerly teacher Terry Willard. You remember telling, remember him telling me that uh, some of the bylines for uh, reishi were to relieve constriction in the chest. You know, in Ayurveda and Chinese medicine, the, the, the heart is the seat of the mind and emotions. And so when there's a lot of tension around the heart and that constriction, you know, it's like we said about breathing. It's like you can't really breathe properly. You're not fully exhaling. So just to relieve that sense of constriction, just open up the chest, open up the heart. And the other byline for it was to, to save an academic from his brain. So for someone who's like thinking too much, just imagine like, thousands of years ago in the Chinese court, you know, some, you know, academic philosopher just, you know, with his head in a book, you know, bumping into columns and tripping over cats and, you know, just not like being grounded, you know, so just to save yourself from that, your brain, your overactive brain and slow the wheels down. So Reishi is very helpful for that, just kind of gets people a little more embodied. And so I use that herb quite a bit in issues around anxiety. I, I recommend it like that you take it preventatively. So like if you're having an, an, an acute anxiety attack, it's not too many things that'll help from a herbal perspective. There are some, but some of those herbs are not ones that I would recommend for just like commonplace usage. But reishi taken uh, preventatively on a regular basis, like first thing in the morning, and then maybe another dose later on in the afternoon, can go a long ways to just slowing things down in your brain, you know, and just giving yourself that pause, you know, where, you know, things like meditation and exercise and, uh, are also very helpful diet, etc. This is just another tool in the toolkit that can just help to slow that process down. So any herb that has like a grounding, stabilizing, energy enhancing, you know, vitality enhancing property, there's lots of herbs in Ayurveda, lots of herbs in Chinese medicine and Western herbal tradition. Uh, even like American ginseng is really helpful uh, in the Western herbal tradition. Like uh, I like the milky oats, mm -hmm. also very grounding, nervine, trophil restorative. So we have lots of different herbal choices uh, for this purpose. I'm really getting from you, you know, the idea of, you know, cleaning the stagnation and moving it through so that any of that blockage and stagnation that's built up through the difficulties of life, basically, and managing it is then cleared through those cologogs or, or you know, mm -hmm. regulators. Mm -hmm. um, and then and then you're really rebuilding that strength and nourishing the whole system with you know, appropriate use of, of some of these tonics that, you know, the last three you mentioned is, that, you know, they're all heavy and grounding in that in that mm -hmm. energetic sense. And so exactly. So maybe if there's more depression and things like that, that that maybe needs to be considered in that context. But um, hmm. I, I, I also love, um, you know, oat straw flowering tops or, or, or yeah. milk tops as well, or, or just yeah. freshly harvested tops because it's got such a sweet flavor and so slightly mucilaginous. It reminds me of lime flower a little bit when I have it. They've got that right. sort of summery, summery delight to them. And hmm. I always find it's so remarkable that something so seemingly is it ubiquitous and grows everywhere or seemingly light and lacking substance it can feel like the the, the flowering tops anyway i know the milky oat has got more body to it yeah so i it haven't used the flowering tops so that's a that's an interesting addition i'd like to check that out yeah before it um when it's it's before the milky bit has got no yeah. glide in or, or whatever appropriate um, mm -hmm. uh, relationship there so yeah that's really nice and also you're really reflecting how Probably the causes are multidimensional, but also the the root. If it's not a root out of anxiety, it's a, a route to a healthier relationship with it. Is also multidimensional, and that you would employ lots of or a few different practices to help people uh, find a route through. Like you say, it's not just don't just take some John's Wort or you know a pill, so to speak. It's a much more complex dynamic that needs that real awareness to study yourself to learn our our vulnerabilities, maybe our weak spots or, or our patterns yeah. that we've learned over time. And I think that's where anxiety for a lot of people connect to trauma in their lives and early childhood trauma. I mean, it, 
I've, I've got, so right now upstairs, I've got uh, a litter of puppies. I've got, uh, they're all four weeks. And, you know, they're just all full of love and curiosity. And this is my third litter I've, I've had in my life. And just acutely aware of just how sensitive they are to any traumas. And of course, you know, like they have little mini traumas where they want to nurse and the mom is like, nope. And she won't, you know, sometimes like they're biting, starting to bite her and she'll just like stand up suddenly and the puppies go flying, you know? So like there's little mini traumas and we all experience that, but I've also seen where there can be bigger traumas. And, and this is one of the challenges with getting dogs that are like, you know, that you, that are, that you, um, you get through the SBCA, you know, that unfortunately haven't had that stable, loving environment. And, you know, we hope that for all of us, you know, that's what we get, you know, in our childhoods is we get that loving, stable environment, you know, and you look at a traditional society like India, 5,000 years ago, you know, the community heavily invested in children. So it wasn't just mother and father, it was all of the siblings, it was the aunts and uncles, it was the grandparents, it was the neighbors. You know, when I, so I, when uh, after I completed my training in Canada, I went to the hospital to study in Coimbatore, Ayurveda Chikitsalam, and I remember, okay, went with my son, and he was 13 months old, and I remember taking him to the compound where the hospital was. I don't know if you've been there before, but it's got kind of a big giant courtyard and the gardeners were fascinated with him and, and they wanted to hold him. And we were talking to someone at the canteen and then, you know, we looked back to see where he was and he was gone. And we're like, where the heck is he gone? And we couldn't, it took us an hour to track him down. Of course, you know, we're a little like, oh my God, those parents were, but he had been passed around to every single person in the compound. They just loved kids, right? And so they'd hold him for a little while and, you know, play with him and then be taken by someone else. And, you know, so there's this whole, and, and of course it was novel because he had, you know, blonde and blue eyes, but, um, but beyond that, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just the way kids are valued in that society and in traditional societies. Uh, and that's something I think that in our culture and certainly from, you know, see the culture of Britain, you're, you know, that, that, that idea that children should be seen, but not heard, you know, you know, this sort of ethos created a lot of damage, you know, where it wasn't okay to be a kid, you know, and, and in that, I think, you know, this idea that we need to conform and behave in certain ways, you know, at an age when we're not even, we have no ability to do that without being traumatized. You know, well, being scared that something bad is going to happen to us. So I definitely see that even just in the commonplace functions of everyday society with the normative values that are found in different cultures, that there's opportunities for trauma and that in turn can then translate into anxiety. It's not just I don't want to just like point the finger at Western culture. I mean, it's, you know, all cultures have some element that's a little bit messed up, you know, and, you know, we're, we're, we're human, you know, so there's a lot of work to be done. But I think that doing some of that deeper work uh, as an adult around trauma and grief can really get at the heart of, of, of this issues of anxiety or depression and can't be ignored. What do you recommend but that through therapy or body work or, or whatever? Oh yeah, D, all the above. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, I think that um, if you've had a traumatic childhood, being able to, to get in touch with the feelings and emotions that you experienced, like it's one thing to have an intellectual understanding that, oh, you know, I, I had a rough childhood, mm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. But like to like hold yourself in the grief and trauma of that and obviously you might need some support you know like a counselor or even like some group work where you know you can share your story with others and and feel held and supported in that sharing it can bring a lot of relief for people and it's not something unfortunately you can just do in a weekend it's going to take time i mean it's a lifetime some of this trauma to kind of to work through but engaging with it uh, is the is the, really the first step and you know just like any old injury it's like you still have to be careful around that but I think that there's a way that you know we can provide and shore up um, some strengthening around that tissue 
damage uh, so that we're more resilient and um, we don't lose connection with our heart, which is, I think, what happens for a lot of people that have, have gone through traumas like this. And there's no herb for this, unfortunately. I mean, there are herbs that are helpful, like some of the ones that we talked about, but uh, I think it's just too formulaic to just, you know, use you know, herb A for for, you know, condition B and expect that that's all there is, especially something like anxiety and depression, which can be rooted in, in this deep trauma. Well, you know, well said, because I think it's often the, the sort of somatization or the embodiment of the, of the experience or the trauma that somehow lodges in our, in our tissues. And that when we do these practices or, or, or therapies or take various herbs, it feels like that stuckness is metabolized somehow and released and so it emerges. And so you can see when people do therapy or take herbs, perhaps like rose or, you know, that can mm -hmm. evoke a very powerful memory and experience that, that can, it can be, it can be released. So you're, you're mm -hmm. so right to say it needs to be held in a space, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do these podcasts is to speak to herbalists so people could hear more firsthand the remarkable work that goes on in clinical practices around the world. And I, I think there's a, a particularly progressive development in the, in the synergy that's happening between the, some of the Western Ayurvedic Chinese, the global traditions of herbalism and the learnings that are going on between all those different practitioners and how that can benefit society and our, and our, and our clients uh, yeah. today. So it feels like to me, it's a historical error that herbalism hasn't got a more uh, poignant, uh, relevant place in society's health when it, when it's so needed. And so I have, um, love, love hearing. Even just the way that you connect people with like, especially with like growing and harvesting their own herbs. So, you know, in that regard, the paradigm of herbal medicine is a little bit revolutionary in the sense that it kind of upends our consumerist perspective that maybe the best medicine for you is to go out and bare feet in the garden and harvest that plant, you know, as opposed to just ordering it on Amazon, you know, and that part of the medicine is actually in the harvesting and preparation of grounding to the earth, of getting the dirt under your fingernails and feeling connected to the earth in that way and giving thanks for this enormous benefit. I think that's a big part of it. And that's, that's one of the things that uh, I think as clinicians, like, I know, like I've had colleagues tell me that for them, they relate to herbs is nothing more than just capsules in a bottle. And I'm just like, gosh, what a sad way to look at herbal medicine. You know, like if I could, I would recommend all my patients go out and make their own medicines, but obviously not everyone is able, but at least having some connection to that. And of course, and of course I think people are just hungry and thirsting for that. So if I ever, even if I do, we have many people in our community, only about 15,000, but if I hold like a, you know, like a herb walk, you know, I always get like tons of people. People are just thirsting mm -hmm. to feel that connection. You know, and that being connected to the earth and realizing that the plants are really, you know, our, our great, great, great grandmother and that, you know, in engaging with them and consuming them, that we are able to, like, incorporate that knowledge into our bodies. I mean, I think that's one of the benefits of eating things like vegetables is that they provide like a genetic blueprint of how to how to grow and develop correctly, you know, so, so helpful to prevent and treat issues like cancer, that just getting that, that, that information, that, that deep seated information about what it means to, to like be in, in a state of balance and harmony and how to grow correctly, you know, cause cancer is getting the wrong message. And uh, so I think they're really helpful to that end. And then one area too, that I've done a lot of work is last 15 years, I've worked with psychedelics and for both anxiety and depression, uh, depending on what substance you're talking about, different substances have different benefits, and all, as well as cautions and contraindications. And probably the one I work with the most is psilocybin mushrooms. I'm not sure the legal status in the UK or it's in Canada, it's still legal, but it's it's sort of now in a in a kind of a gray area where 
even like in Vancouver, you know, there's shops that you can go in and, and buy psilocybin mushrooms uh, on a retail basis. And, and, you know, it's good that it's opening up. It feels like in the American things are waking up. So very illegal. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I thought he was awakened to the idea that there's not actually that much harm. I mean, there is potentially, but when you compare it to alcohol, <laughs> it's just like there's, um, it's almost harmless. So, uh, but there's still a, a potential or capacity for harm. And so the other things about anxiety is they know that William Woodsworth um, poem, you know, the, the world is too much with us. I think this is also an expression of that tendency towards anxiety is that we just get too wrapped up on our own ego identity and that sort of conditioned awareness of how we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to show up and what we're supposed to do. And it induces fragmentation and itself can be function as a kind of trauma. And so having this capacity to kind of like have like sort of the psychological reset where not elements of that ego just sort of fall away. Now, you know, a place like India has like a network of ashrams and practices where those types of experiences can, can be supported. And we don't really have that in the same way. So it's a little bit of a shortcut to having some of those experiences, but I found it to be very effective for anxiety, specifically like macro dose psilocybin mushrooms. Um, Macrodose means what you're talking about, uh, a proper psychedelic dose rather than a microdose. Yeah, so like, so for like a species like Psilocybe cubensis, which is the most commonly cultivated mushroom, um, yeah, having like a dose of like, say like five grams, you know, and you know, for most people, it's not a, a dose where you can get up and walk around. It's you know, you're flat on your back, and you know, you're in that kind of shivasana. <laughs> you know, position and, you know, really going inward. And there's sort of this, it's, um, this, this sort of your, your ego state just kind of falls away a little bit. And it's not like every aspect of your identity, you know, falls away. You still like a, a core sense of who you are, but the conditioned reality that where the, in which that witness consciousness that we all have is just, you know, completely wrapped up in, and isn't able to disconnect from this experience allows or facilitates that. And so even the experience itself is sometimes hard to make sense of, but in the days and the weeks afterwards, as the person reintegrates after that experience, they often, they often have this, this feeling of like this, this, of this falling away of that ego state that formerly were triggers in relationships or in situations that would cause them anxiety or anger, irritability or whatever, just don't provoke that response because they had an experience that allowed them to recontextualize their place in this universe. And even though the big questions about who am I and what this meaning of life sometimes aren't answered, but just having that capacity to just disassociate from that conditioned reality for a little while, and reset the brain. And of course, there's other benefits of the mushrooms in terms of like uh, enhancing uh, dendritic spine growth and, and, and inducing the state of neuroplasticity are really important. I think very helpful to that end. Uh, I, I think it's, I mean, my opinion is that I think probably everyone would benefit from having one psychedelic experience in their life. You know, not at a party, at a rave, you know, but in a controlled therapeutic environment, I think it's a great gift that uh, that would I really elevate uh, the this is the the operating level of humanity, you know how we see each other across the table when we're in conflict. If you can you know find a commonality with each other in terms of our human shared experience beyond the specifics of our arguments, uh, and I think that's what something like the psychedelic experience can facilitate. In, in, when used in correctly and in moderation and, you know, for very specific purposes. Now, I'm really glad you mentioned it because, uh, you know, the increase in the trials um, in the use of psilocybin for depression, etc., you know, gaining more um, awareness in the, in the medical community. But also what you said at the end there, just this idea of dissolving 
our egos for a while to feel a greater sense of connectivity with the, the greater whole in life. I wholeheartedly agree with you that I think that would be of great advantage. And, Wouldn't it? Yeah, really, it feels very needed. And just thank you for the work you're doing, Todd. It really is inspiring. And I'm sure thank everyone you. listening to this would love to get on to uh, you know, the uh, Dogwood Botanical School website and um, explore some of your, your uh, teachings and some of your uh, writing. So, yeah, really love, love having the chance to hear your insights and, yeah, hope we stay connected more. Yeah, yeah, well, it's my pleasure. You've been listening to The Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, perhaps you'd like to leave us a rating. That would really help us to spread our message for herbal health. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode. And in the meantime, if you'd like a few more herbal insights from us, do have a look at herbalreality.com. Or learn more from us via Instagram, where we're at herbal.reality. And we're on Twitter and Facebook too. We'll be back with another episode of The Herbcast soon. Thanks for joining.